Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Why do you continue to show up and fight for public housing? I think that affordable and public housing are are essential to the stability of many families and the survival of the cities. Because I need a roof over my head and I have no other family to go to. What did NYCHA mean to you and your family? It meant a home, you know, like we had been living there for 20 plus years. So this was a privilege, NYCHA was a privilege for us. I think it's one of the best laws ever written in the entire country, in the history of our country, because it is so aggressive and it is so progressive. You have eviction protection, you have a right to mediation, you have a right to legal resources. But for 30 years, they've abandoned it. And now it's at the point where it is a failure. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. We are thinking this week about home, the place where you go for comfort and safety, where you settle down and unwind, maybe share holiday time off with your loved ones. How much should that cost us? And how do we make it available to everybody? Because right now, it's not something you can take for granted. There's an official measure that determines when you can't afford the place you call home. Whether you rent or pay a mortgage, if you have to spend more than 30% of your income on housing, the federal government considers you cost-burdened and therefore at risk of losing your home. Right now, a record high number of Americans fit this definition, more than 21 million households. Nearly 12 million renters spend more than half of their income on housing. And we wonder why so many people feel so insecure about money. Perhaps it is more than gas prices, yeah? The problem is not that everybody wants an overly fancy place to live. On the contrary, over roughly the past decade or so, there has been a dramatic decrease in the supply of affordable housing all over the country. Now, there is a very old solution to this problem. It's called publicly subsidized housing. And I want to start this week by hearing from a young woman, a 17-year-old in New York City, for whom public housing has been a life-changing force. Fanta Kaba moved around a lot when she was growing up because her family couldn't afford a place to stay. Public housing solved that problem, but she and many others now fear that uh, the resource that gave her stability will not be available to the next generation of families. So she's been reporting on the future of public housing as part of WNYC's Radio Rookies program, which is a program that trains people to tell first-person stories of what's happening in their communities. We'll hear a couple of reports from Fanta in this show. First up, she kind of sets the stakes for our conversation. Here's Fanta. Your car needed maintenance. Aisha, you are so annoying. Like, you're always bothering me. You're really saying I have a big family, so I barely get any privacy. When things get too loud or when my siblings annoy me, I just go to my room and shut the door. All right, so this is my room. 
On the wall, there's a bunch of posters. One of them says, don't stop trying and life is fantastic. I love my room. It's my favorite place. It's the one place where I can get some peace and quiet. So there's a poster of Jimi Hendrix and there's another poster for Tame Impala and another one is Rolling Stones. Um, And then I do have to share it with my annoying little sister. But it's way better than when I had to share one room with all five of my siblings. Or when we live with my grandparents and aunts and uncles. Imagine, 15 people in a two-bedroom apartment. That was one of the places we stayed. Growing up, we moved around a lot. Harlem, Queens, the Bronx, even North Carolina for a while. My parents' jobs did not pay enough. My dad drove taxis, and my mom was a home attendant. All right, so when you first came to America, where did you first go? Like, what was your first place you stayed at? Um, when we first came to America, we was living in Manhattan. Okay. Yes, Harlem. That's my mom. Living Harlem. She and my dad moved here from Guinea, hoping for a new life. What they didn't know is that finding a home in a place like New York City is almost impossible. When I was eight, after bouncing around, we ended up at a shelter. So how did did it feel to stay in the shelter? With like, you know, six kids, you know it's a temporary housing situation. Like, how was it for you? Well, it was not that easy. Yeah. But I was grateful. At least I have a place to stay with my kids. And it was okay. It was okay. It was okay. We had a roof over our heads, but the shelter never felt like my home. It had blank white walls, and I didn't put anything up. I knew we were just going to leave again. I felt really uncomfortable there. Then, the workers at the shelter helped my mom apply for a new apartment, a NYCHA apartment. That's what everyone calls the New York City Housing Authority, or our city's public housing, the projects. I knew there was some stigma around living in the projects, but my parents told us we were going to have a big new apartment with four bedrooms. They took us to Home Depot to pick out paint colors. And they said, this time, we're not moving again. NYCHA gave my family stability and community. Out of everywhere I've lived, this is the only place I've ever considered home. And I know thousands of New Yorkers can relate. Our buildings may not be the prettiest or the newest, but we know our rent won't go up. Everyone pays 30% of their income in rent, no matter how much or how little you make. That's Radio Rookies reporter Fanta Kaba. We'll hear more from her and her reporting later in the show. She's one of about half a million people in New York City alone who live in public housing. That is homes subsidized by the federal government and managed by the city and state. And with me in studio now is Tatiana Turner, who reports on public housing for the publication City Limits. Tatiana, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I wonder uh, about your reaction to this part of Fanta's story, this idea that public housing was life-changing for her in terms of having a home, not just like a place to stay, but a place to have a home. How often do you hear that idea? Absolutely. I would say I can't think of a source I've spoken with who did not say that NYCHA was a reliable, stable source for them. Mm. Um Everyone that I've talked to uh, who's a NYCHA resident, it's it's their home. You know, it's it's a sense of pride and pride for them. Yeah. It, which is kind of contrary to our cultural conversation about public housing, I guess, right? I mean, talk about that difference for me um, uh, and, you know, what how, how we normally think about public housing versus what you hear people who live in public housing say about it. Absolutely. So as Fanta had mentioned, uh, you hear the term like, oh, it's the projects and the stigmas around it, the uh, 
maybe there's just uh, poor conditions or, you know, it's it's where it's poverty and just like these really negative uh, connotations associated with uh, public housing rather than it being a uh, a place where in New York City, uh, to have a place where it's assured that you're not your rent isn't going to go up past thirty percent of your income, I mean it's a it's a rarity in cities like New York City. So, uh, but for people, it's a reliable source for many. What brings you to the housing beat? By the way, it's it's quite a wonky topic. I've done quite a bit of housing reporting myself. Uh, why is it important for you? What brings you to this beat? You know, NYCHA has a history in my own family. Uh, it's kind of seen as a foundation, and I just kind of wanted that to come out into my reporting. So NYCHA is the first place I ever called home. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for my mom, she uh, she was raised in the Bronx uh, at, a house, at a housing development called Patterson Houses. My father was a few blocks down at Batanzas Houses, also in the Bronx, which I'll later uh, go into. It's now under private management. And um, my grandmother, she was uh, raised in Brooklyn at the Red Hook Houses. So I got to see uh, firsthand what stability really means for families and what it does to bring them to the next level. And so as a consequence, that that is that's motivated you to be like, I want to I want to cover this. Exactly. Because I think that when it comes to NYCHA, it's true. Two things can be true at once, which is uh, are there repairs that need to be done? Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, uh, people want to see a reflection of themselves in their homes. So I just want to I want that to come through, mm. too, that uh, people can walk away when they see pieces of mine or just NYCHA in general, that they they feel represented mm-hmm. accurately, and it's yeah. not just about, you know, con- the conditions of their home. Right. Uh, I mentioned that Fanta and others are worried about the future of public housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to take a break soon, but it, and we're going to hear more from her about what that, what the crisis is. But to just get us started, what is the core challenge facing public housing right now? So earlier this year, uh, NYCHA announced that it needs an 80 80- billion dollar need over the next 20 years to repair all of its developments across all five boroughs. So looking at that number, uh, the Housing Authority is looking at two different initiatives. The first one is called the Permanent Affordability Commitment Together Program, known as PACT. So in short, that's when uh, they a new developer comes in and they manage the day-to-day for that property. NYCHA will continue to own the land. And the other one is preservation trust. And through the trust model, uh, they can unlock new funds through bonds and mortgages. Uh, NYCHA still handles the day-to-day management. But I can get more into that later. But essentially, that's what... Well, but, and, to. and to back that up a step, essentially, mm-hmm. meaning they don't have enough money. They don't have enough money. <laughs> $80 billion is, $80 billion is a lot of money. yes. And is that unique to NYCHA? NYCHA, as you know, you, you've been saying NYCHA, and just for folks not in New York, that's again, that's new, the name of New York's public housing facilities. Is is that unique to NYCHA, or throughout that... the entire United States, uh, housing authorities are dealing with aging and crumbling infrastructure, and they're seeing numbers like that, and they, where they are, if it's not, uh, they may call it something different than packed, but they're essentially handing those properties to private management. Because, again, (laughs) there's not enough enough money. Okay, well, we're going to take a break. Uh, I'm talking with housing reporter Tatiana Turner about the future of public housing in this country and about the broader affordable housing crisis that shapes so much about life in the United States. We're going to talk more about that and, uh, and, and the privatization models in public housing. But also, we're going to ask you to give us a call later in the show to tell us about affordable housing in your communities in general. When we come back, we'll hear another report from 17-year-old Fanta Kaba from her neighbors in public housing here in New York. And again, later in the show, we're going to hear from you. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. 
to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. We're talking this week about the affordable housing crisis nationally and thinking right now about the role of public housing in solving that problem. Here with me in the studio is Tatiana Turner, housing reporter at City Limits. And we've been listening to tape collected by WNYC radio rookie Fanta Kaba from a protest she attended where public housing residents are grappling with a difficult choice. Fanta is a 17-year-old in New York City whose family found stability and security, a home, when they got an apartment in public housing after years of struggling to afford a long-term place to live. But public housing in New York and nationally has been underfunded for a long, long time now, and the growing consensus is that public agencies that run these complexes just can't afford to keep them up. Fanta has been reporting on what that means for residents in New York's public housing and the difficult choice that they increasingly face. So here's Fanta again. NYCHA is notoriously slow when it comes to fixing things. Right now, there are hundreds of thousands of open work orders across the city. And it takes an average of 360 days for NYCHA to handle each one. As has been very well documented, We have not been getting sufficient uh, capital funding for decades to maintain the buildings at the level at which they should be maintained. That's Jonathan Gavaya, NYCHA's executive VP for real estate development. It is our hope that residents will see these opportunities as a way to bring the, the comprehensive renovations that they need and enhanced services that they deserve. And here's the opportunity NYCHA came up with. Inviting private developers in to take over public housing. Because private companies do have money, and they can take on debt to finance these big renovations. This public-private partnership plan comes from the federal government. It started 10 years ago in Greene County, Illinois. Since then, about 200,000 public housing units across the country have gone under private management. In big cities like Los Angeles, and small cities, like Ypsilanti, Michigan. Most of our tenant protections are supposed to stay the same. But people don't trust these landlords to follow the rules. And I can see why. A report from a nonprofit called Human Rights Watch says there's not enough oversight of these private companies. And city officials in New York are investigating eviction rates in these buildings with private-public partnerships. So tenants here are scared, and they're fighting back. What private developer do you know that gives a damn about low-income people? They don't. NYCHA's plan puts for-profit real estate companies in charge. They sign a 99-year lease. Then they pay for all the renovations and bring in a private management company. They do everything, from collecting the rent to cleaning the hallways to handling leaks. So I wanted to know, what does it really mean for families like mine? Hi, I'm Sanji. Hi, nice to meet you. Sanji? Yes. Okay. Hi, my name is Fonta. Nice to meet you. Sanji Lopez grew up in Batanzas Houses, which is a few blocks away from my housing complex in the South Bronx. When Sanji's complex went under private management three years ago, Sanji's family thought the new company would come in and solve all of the leaks, mold, and pest issues in their apartment. They really showed us pictures of, like, the before and after. Of course, that got everyone excited and riled up, like, seeing what could be. You know, oh, they're going to remodel everything. They're going to, you know, take the the cabinets down. Finally, these old cabinets that we've been dealing with for, Mm -hmm. for decades at this point are going to be removed and going to be replaced with better cabinets. Um, The walls are going to be repainted. Um, The bathrooms are going to be redone. So we were... She was so excited about this plan, which is called PAT. Permanent Affordability Commitment Together. She even appeared in a promotional video NYCHA made. I found it on YouTube. I trust that PACT has the residents' best interests in mind. When did you realize, like, the renovations weren't all, it was, like, cut up to be? 
the pain was the first thing. The pain started chipping in a matter of days. Um, and I realized, oh my gosh, this wasn't really well done. Like it was, I don't know if the contractor they hired wasn't good, but like there was still like spaces where they didn't paint, like spaces that were missing paint, spaces that, you know, were painted over improperly, spots that were chipping away so fast. And also it was like incomplete in the bathroom, you know, like we had to complain about missing sealants around the, the bathtub, you know, mold also, again, accruing even more than it did with NYCHA, right? And whenever I would tell the... Even though NYCHA usually takes forever to fix things, Sanji thinks this new system is much worse. It's just send the email, hope that somebody responds, follow up again two or three times, and then maybe they'll come, you know? Um, she says some things are better. The kitchen looks much nicer, with dark brown cabinets and new countertops. Someone fumigates, so there are fewer roaches. But overall, she said, it feels like she traded one bad situation for another. Speaking to some neighbors on the same block, they've told me things. I've heard this quote twice. Same crap, different toilet. She laughs about it because sometimes that's all we can do. Shrug it off. But the reality is, this is the plan that was supposed to make everything better. And residents in her building don't have another shot at another plan. Their complex is under private management now, for the next 99 years. Still, we have issues with heat and hot water during the wintertime, so that didn't go away. The issues didn't go away. You know, like, we thought that privatization was going to solve all of our issues, but it didn't. That's 17-year-old Fanta Kaba reporting for WNYC's Radio Rookies program. She's one of about a half a million people in New York City who live in public housing. That is, again, apartments subsidized by the federal government, managed locally. And with me in the studio is housing reporter Tatiana Turner from the urban affairs publication City Limits. She has been closely covering the effort to preserve New York's public housing. And Tatiana, can you... Let's first try to unpack this whole privatization conversation a little bit for people who are not familiar with any of this stuff. Um, it, Fanta says it started in Illinois. That was the first place where this came up. When was that and how did it emerge? Like, where does, where does this come from? So peeling back, there was in the 90s all the way up until uh, 2010, uh, there was a federal program called Hope Six, and it was a urban revitalization program. And essentially what that did was it took housing developments that were in not good state, they were aging, like I said, a crumbling infrastructure, and they would be demolished. So these housing agencies would get this grant to do to go with the, uh, the demolition, and then new uh, structures were built. These new structures, what would happen is uh, only a percentage would be held for low-income residents. The rest was mixed income. So there's no guarantee that people who had to move or be relocated uh, would be able to move back to their homes. So the federal government was saying, you know, this this program doesn't work. It's dis- it displaced uh, thousands of residents across the nation. And so the next wave of urban revitalization was a program called the Rental Assistance Demonstration, and that's known as RAD. And uh, in New York City, that's known as the Permanent Affordability Commitment Together Program, known as PACT. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, that's where it, it got started. Um, it was just kind of like a second plan, like a plan B. Which to, is to say in the 90s, as yes. far back as the 90s now, there was a conversation about, oh, we can't afford public housing. What if we privatize it? Um, and I and I think some people. I certainly remember the the the, the coverage of that and the controversy at the time um, about um, about the Hope program. But it's interesting that it's I it is not something you hear about often now. I mean, this is not a a, a big part of our public conversation. Do you, do you think it's not? But I will say residents do point to it when uh, when they do hear about PACT or. You know, when they hear about a possible demolition, they point to Hope Six and they'll say, oh, like, look what happened at uh, Cabrini Green or the Magnolia Houses in New Orleans. They'll point Cabrini to Cabrini Green in Chicago. in Chicago. Yes. And they'll point to other developments across the country and say, look at 
what happened with the displacement. And just to give some figures for uh, Hope 6, uh, 200,000 units were demolished. They they were removed, and only 50,000 were for low income. This is across the nation. But even with those 50,000, it wasn't guaranteed that those residents, uh, low-income residents, were able to move back into those properties. So um, let me make sure I followed that. So the, right. the outcome of this of the 1990s-era privatization idea was that they tore down 200,000 public housing units, mm-hmm. um, and then only 50,000 people moved back into public Only 50,000 units, uh, apartments, were for low income. When they rebuilt them. When they rebuilt them. But as for the number of residents, it it's not 50,000, unfortunately. Right, right. Uh, people the, had to get rescreened and... The demand was yeah, much higher than yep. there was supply. Absolutely. What What is at stake here in terms of in privatization, in terms of this trade-off between investments that are needed financially and the rights of tenants? Um this is something that Fanta has talked about, uh, that, you know, that there's not enough money to do the repairs, and so they're doing privatization, and then that means uh, you lose some rights. So what, is, what does that mean? What policy change goes with moving from public to private? Well, I want to say it's, like I said, like with NYCHA, it's a, it's a sense of stability. Your rent is not going to go up. That's guaranteed. And under private management, there's just there are more question marks. There's no uh, definitives that I I can give because you know which with each uh, developer it could be different. The relationship could be different. Um, and let me just kind of break that down further. Um, when I'm referring to pact, each development that goes under the pact program, they may each have a different developer. So one development team may work better with a group than another might. So instead of having just the city mm-hmm. um, right. or the state or the federal government as your landlord, now each complex has a different developer. Right. And we know what that's like. Right. Anybody with uh, living in private housing now, um, sometimes you got a good landlord and sometimes you do not. Right. So <laughs> um, it's 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 chancy. And that's what and that's what residents are, are really pointing to. Like, it, it could be great. And I believe it was uh, Sanji and Batandis who was basically like, you know, we were told that this was going to be a great fix. And we were really believing these promises only to be let down. Yeah. So where privatization has occurred, if the trade-off is supposed to be more investment um, in exchange for these question marks around stability, has the investment followed? Have, have we seen you know, nicer countertops and paint that isn't chipped and all of the things that uh, that we heard Fanta talk in Fanta's report. Have, has that happened? Have they that, seen be- better repairs? That has happened. Um, there is this, there's one tenant I remember speaking with a couple of months ago, and I asked him, uh, he's at the Baychester houses in the Bronx, and he was saying that he's happy with the changes. He said that there's more upkeep, better communication in place, uh, more security and he feels safer and he can he feels more pride not only within his unit but just the development as a whole on the complete opposite end i've heard residents say that the relationship with the development team is not great and they wish that they could go back to the traditional public housing section 9 model so again section 9 model meaning it's public housing that is in public in housing mm-hmm. so but again i mean this is so it's like you know sometimes it's works for you sometimes it doesn't I guess I want people to understand, or I want us to understand, like why that's a bad thing. Then that's how's that different than housing in general? That's 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 life in housing, right? Um, I think because of a sense of familiarity, and it might just for residents that's uprooting them from what they know, and the people that they know, the management that they know, into other hands where you're just kind of taking chances that. Right. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have, right. Right. And, this, and again, the, the idea is that folks in public housing are there because they needed the stability because mm-hmm. of uh, uh, because of housing insecurity. We heard Fanta uh, talk about the act, the tenant activism in New York um, around this. And one change that officials have made here is to allow tenants to vote on whether they want to go private. That's a big deal nationally, right? Like the fact that that's happening. Put that in context for us. Has that happened anywhere else? Or is New York the first place that's happening? To my understanding, it's it's New York so far. And, um, you know, just on, on Friday, Mayor Adams 
uh, had announced that the Notion Houses in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, was the first development to go under a model called Public Housing Preservation Trust. So, but yes, that was the first development to ever even vote on what funding model they want for their future. And how did that vote go? What would it? So at the Notion Houses, just to walk it back a little bit, uh, they found out earlier this year, I want to say in July, that there would be a vote. And between July and November, uh, there was a 100 days of engagement period where uh, NYCHA management, along with uh, organizations, would go to Nostrand, speak with residents about this vote, the three options that they have. And the three options were to stay in Section 9, stay as is. Um, the other one was Permanent Affordability Commitment Together Program Pact, or the Public Housing Preservation Trust, which is an untested model. That's the one where uh, funds are unlocked through uh, bonds and mortgages. And that's the model that they chose, with, which was a uh, Public Housing Preservation Trust. But this seems like a lot, first off. for yeah. I mean, I'm having trouble following that. I can't imagine like <laughs> totally. my housing being dependent upon me having to make that choice. That seems like a... Is this really a solution? I mean, to have that's a fairly high level of sophistication for you to have about a housing market to choose your road forward. I mean, is it, do how do you think this is the way to do it? And if and if not, why? I think I think that it's still too early to talk. My hope is that it is a it is a solution from a financial standpoint. Perhaps. But from a residential pers- uh, standpoint with people's experiences, I think I think it might vary. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's a lot to ask of, of a tenant. <laughs> Listeners, we can take your calls as well throughout this hour. Studies say there are more households struggling to pay for housing today than ever before beyond public housing. Is that you? Um, What's it look like where you live? We can take your calls and texts, particularly if you're living in public housing. We'd love to hear from you. Um you mentioned, and we're going to start this and have to get back to it after a break, but you mentioned that New York City, Tantiana, needs $80 billion um, to, to keep up. How did that number get so large? Well, by the time, by 2013, I want to say, uh, there was 50% of federal disinvestment in public housing in general. Uh, but I want to say it's also uh, small repairs, like a a sink maybe that needs to be replaced, those just don't get done. And, you know, the average tenant in public housing, and at least in NYCHA, lives in, uh, lives in NYCHA for 25 years. So all of that adds up, whether mm-hmm. it's a small, whether it's a leak or even mold, which I guess we could circle back to later and how that plays out in public housing. That usually gets painted over, but that's not a solution. Painting a lot of, over mold is definitely not a solution no, to I, I, have, I have had it in my home, and that will not solve it. We, I do want to come back to that, but we need to take a break. I'm talking with housing reporter Tatiana Turner from City Limits. We've been talking about the crisis in public housing specifically, and we went, when we come back, we want to broaden that to talk about the overall affordability crisis in housing in the country. Studies say there are more households struggling to pay for housing today than ever before. So if that is you, what's it look like where you live? We'll take your calls after a break. Hi, everyone. My name is Rahima, and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by housing reporter Tatiana Turner from City Limits. We're talking about the affordable housing crisis in America and public housing in particular, a growing number of cities that cannot afford to pay or say they cannot afford to pay to continue the upkeep uh, of that housing stock. So they've begun to 
turn to private developers to take it over. And we can take your calls and text messages. I'm particularly interested in hearing from you if you live in public housing. Maybe you have a question for Tatiana uh, or your own experience maybe can add to our understanding of the challenges that residents are facing. But we can also hear from anyone struggling to find an affordable place to call home. What's what's the cost of housing like where you're hunting? Uh, Tatiana, before the break, we were talking mold. Um, and uh, I was going to ask you about some details for what we mean by lack of repairs. But if that's a striking one, that they've been painting over mold as opposed to removing mold right. for these years? Yes. So, uh, but as uh, an example of that is maybe like a redone bathroom or a redone kitchen. Like, oh, there's new facades or like new paint. It looks pretty, but there's something underneath that can make people really sick, and that's mold, yeah. asbestos. Yeah. Which is wildly expensive to remove. Yes. And, and that else. But what about the divestment part? Um, mm. So I get that how we got to $80 billion in New York is, you know, this idea that it's been, they've been painting over mode for decades, and so it just gets worse. Um, but is it also about less money going in? in the first place um, from the federal government? And if so, where did that, where and how did that start? It's also, I just also want to like add, introduce this part too um, with, in terms of management, because I think the finances is is one piece, but it's also how fast repairs just get done in the first place and how fast apartments get turned around. Um, For instance, in in, uh, the New York City uh, housing system, I think it takes 412 days just to turn an apartment around, just to get it ready for the next uh, resident to come in. So it's it's that too. It's the lack of um, it's the lack of funding and not enough staff maybe to even do the repairs that need to be done. I that makes me think about it. There used to I used to know the stat about the length of the waiting list to get into public housing in New York. do, do you know that still? What? How long is it? Is the waiting list just to get a unit in public housing? Yeah, the last I heard was, uh, the longest that I've heard was 11 years. 11 years? Yes. And as of last year, this is a last year stat, but uh, 278,000 people on the waiting list for a NYCHA apartment. Oh. Wow. And again, what does that look like nationally? Do you see those same kinds of numbers in other cities? The same stats. I know in Chicago, I want to say the waiting time is about seven years for an apartment. Wow. Yeah. In and, public housing. Mm-hmm. And it, and so is does the privatization piece answer that part of it in any way? In some ways, one might say it can make it more complicated, and here's why. When a public housing development goes into uh, RAD or PACT or any uh, private management, it takes it away from the public housing portfolio. So that means less developments and less apartments available for those who are on the waiting list. I think I follow that. So, yeah. like, but the, so when they move, when they move to privatization, then mm-hmm. those units they're still technically public housing. They're still federally subsidized units, but you don't. But you can't apply for those if you were already on the waiting list for for, no, for public housing. No, you can't. You can't move in, and it's also a struggle to uh, to transfer if you're within, say, you're in NYCHA. You can't move from one NYCHA development to a PAC development. There's complexities there oh. that I can break down. But in terms of people on the waiting list, no, it's, oh, um, oh. you can't, yeah. Let's take some calls. Uh, John in Brooklyn, New York. John, welcome to the show. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Great. Okay, my name is John Lever, and I live here in Carroll Gardens, um, Brooklyn. And I just want to give a different perspective. Like this, this, this affordable housing crisis in New York City is, you know, it takes different forms for different people. So we've we've lived in this building here for 30 years. Um, 63 Tiffany. You can see our website, safe63tiffany.com. We have a whole campaign around it. And after 30 years now, the LIHTC agreement has been expired, and they want us all to like move out, I guess, so they can go to a fair market rate. And um, it's just it's, it's a horrible situation. We've lived here 30 years. The people that moved in here. You know, when they were a lot younger, 30, 40, and 50, and now 60, 70, and 80. I even have a 92-year-old yeah. couple that, that was a Korea, I mean, not Korea, yeah. Uh, yeah, Korea War vet. And now they want us all out so that they can rent it out to more affluent neighbors. When we John, first moved in here, this is a desolate area. I'm sorry. So, John, what is that? What what will that mean for you? If if I, I hear that you are fighting it, but 
if you are unable to stay, what will that mean for you? I'm, I'm priced out of New York City. I'm totally priced out. The, you know, the average right now is like, what, 4000 4200 for one bedroom. I have a two, I need a two bedroom. I have a severely autistic teenage son. Um, there's, I, I don't even know. There's no plan B option here. I don't even know. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, John. And I hope I, I hope you win the fight. Um, let's go to Mike in. I'm sorry. Let's go to Jose in Illinois. Jose, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I just wanted to say real quick. Uh, I'm Puerto Rican. Grew up on the west side of Humboldt Park. I saw slowly the gentrification happening. Uh, my parents wanted me to keep the house, but uh, I couldn't afford that time. You know, that was in the 90s when a lot of these, uh, uh, the factories were gone. You know, my, my dad retired. And uh, so they moved out, you know, they moved out to Oswego when my dad retired. And I was stuck out there. That's about 60 miles away uh, west of Chicago. Out there, there was no internet, no nothing, no way for me to even get a, a you know a job out there. It was a boonies for real. So I was trying to finish school. Long story short, my dad tried to help me get a house here in Broadview, Illinois, so I can be next to the Veterans Hospital because he needed cancer care. A month later, he he passes away. Uh, when, when, a month later after we closed, he passes away. And I went through Lucha to try to get a loan. None of them would give me a loan. They tried to take my, my, my dad's money, my mom's money. They're looking at all types of income, always rejected all the time. And, uh, you know, right now I got this house and, and, and I, during COVID, I, I got a job teaching at, at CCC and also teach at Triton College. But if the income is low, they're not they're not paying me what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Puerto Ricans are the canaries in the coal mine in terms of gentrification because you can even see our island being gentrified. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the struggle. I'm going to be nonstop. I'm yeah, 50 years yeah. old. I'm constantly going to be in the struggle trying to catch up with, with this market, that this neoliberal market, that yeah. really is, is uh, the only reason they're there is to make profit. Okay, yeah. I'll take, uh, and that's, that's all I want to say. Thank, Thank you. you, Jose. So gentrification, Tatiana, I mean, when, when we talk about gentrification, mostly it's, it's a cultural conversation, I feel like. It's often, it's very often people talking about sort of the changing faces of a neighborhood. Uh, Jose's talking about something much more concrete. How does that show up in this conversation for you? In terms of, I think it, from what I've heard from like the tenants that I've spoken with, uh, gentrification does come up and it's something that people have questions about because, especially in terms of privatization, because people want to know what the, um, the intention is, I guess, for taking over uh, certain properties. Um, this is just like a very nice specific uh, answer, so I apologize. But um, people just kind of want to know what the intentions are, if it's mm-hmm. truly to better their personal lives or if it's for financial gain or to better the neighborhood and to push them out of it. Right, right. Yeah. It, well, which is to say, in the context of this kind of rapid development of neighborhoods, you know, I could see why you would be skeptical of like, oh, now you're going to privatize this building. Is this going to be just like the other ones? Uh, let's go to Mike in Suffern, New York. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I have two questions if you have time. The first one is, you know, why didn't they do like a trial period on the, the 99 year situation? And if, if it's not working out, why can't they rescind the contract? Okay, so that's one question. Tell me the other one real quick. I'm going to take them both at the same time. Oh, Mike. the other one is I, I've heard great things about Vienna's public housing. Why can't we have something like that here? Vienna's public housing. Okay, two good questions. What about, so the 99-year contracts that people are signing, uh, this is, again, NYCHA-specific, New York-specific. It's a 99-year contract for these privatization companies why is it 99 years, uh, and can they be canceled? That's a really great question. Uh, as for why they're 99 years, the short answer for NYCHA is that it's for stability purposes and to ensure that the units, even though they're in the private market, that they stay affordable. Uh, and so that's that's the short answer on the 99-year lease. But there are many more complexities and questions about that, too, um, in terms of will— uh, Will they be able to back out of that? And I think that's still to be determined. I don't believe so, though. It, that it's that it's that a sealed, it's, that's it. That's a sealed they've deal. They've got them, and this is they're doing them for good. Yeah. And then this question: Are you familiar with Vienna's I public am not. housing? I, I uh, want to hear more about this, though. Okay. All right. Well, we should. I should have kept uh, <laughs> uh, Mike on to tell us more about Vienna's public housing. But uh, there are there are public housing models all over the all over the world. Is part of the point, and why right. couldn't we learn from some of them? 
Um, I, I do want. So we have a text from someone who asked, "Why can't people help themselves get together and fix the stuff themselves? How, help? What is what, what is your response to, to a question like that? What what why, what did, some tenants I imagine do? They do. Uh, they're there are residents who are between a rock and a hard place, and they're they're coming together. They're unifying. And if I can, I want to uh, bring a specific uh, development that's coming to mind, and it's the Fulton and Elliott Chelsea development in Manhattan. Uh, it'll be the first pack development to go under a demolition and a rebuilding. So when with tenants hear that, they're rallying together. Uh, to even answer each other's questions and to support each other through this scary process for them. So I've seen more tenants just kind of rally together in terms of uh, privatization, whether it's the demolition, whether it's the vote. I've just seen uh, tenants just kind of, NYCHA already has a sense of community where tenants are just kind of interwoven, but now more than ever, I've seen them uh, work with each other. Which is to say people help themselves by by organizing. By advocating, yes. (laughs) Advocating for their rights. Uh, let's go to JP in Chicago. JP, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, I was just wondering, I know New York has rent control, but, uh, in Chicago, we don't have anything like that, that I'm aware of. And I know San Francisco is having a housing crisis too. And I'm wondering, is that the sort of thing, does that need to be on a ballot for people to vote to have rent control? Or is that, how does something like that go into effect? I know the rules in New York for how we get rent control. I couldn't tell you. It's state-by-state state law. I don't know. I put Tatiana, I'll put you on the spot, see if you know Illinois' I rules. Don't. That's a great, that's a great question, though. Um, yeah. I only, I'm only familiar with New uh, York. Well, in New yeah, York, yeah. You've get, there is a state law that you have to have a housing emergency declared uh, because of the, the, there's not enough available units uh and and if you meet that definition then you ought then then your locality can opt itself into a rent control program i know because uh a town i live in right now newburgh is going through this debate uh and it tends to be quite heated <laughs> indeed um so well let, let me take one more call before we turn change before we move to something else let's go to joe in burlington vermont joe welcome to the show hey there thanks for taking my call I, uh, I'm an economist, uh, and I study uh, housing affordability. And I think one of the things that, that, that we see in the data is sort of this, this proliferation of private investors in the market. And I think that's one of the things that's sort of underlying this entire conversation. Um, I think as a society, we don't think about housing as a human right as much as we should. And if the private market is supposed to fix this problem, you know, when the private investors go in there, they need to make profits, right? They're they're not there to fix to to to, to fix mold necessarily. They're they're there to turn a profit. Um, yeah. And the the data we we hear a lot that like we don't have enough houses, we don't have enough houses, and and that's surely part of the story. But but the data also bears out that when we see an increase in houses, um, prices go up. Um, and we've seen in Burlington, Vermont, and in Vermont in general. Uh, this massive increase in investors. Um, so this is sort of normal mainstream economic model of how we're going to fix it through more housing and privatization, I think, is just the wrong way. And we need to return to thinking about housing as something everyone needs. A basic human right. Thank you for that, Joe. What about this idea of housing as a basic human right? I mean, how much is that part of the political conversation around um, uh, around the public housing period right now? I think that one question that I do hear often is, especially with this $80 billion uh, figure, is how come we the NYCHA can't uh, raise that money and just kind of keep all properties under the traditional Section 9 model and without having private developers involved? And I'll leave it just as uh, a question because I think it's a, a great one that uh, that's raised. And like I said, it's... If we go into that, we'll have like we'll need a whole another half hour. But, but that that is something that is talked about. Yeah, um, I and I want you know in New York, housing is a fundamental right in our constitution, and I do wonder about nationally the idea of housing as a fundamental human right. Uh, uh, I mean, that may be asking too much for 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 our current political climate, but for sure, I 
I can point to uh, what a couple of other cities are doing, um, and this is as of the past couple of weeks. Uh, they're looking at some cities are looking at abandoned homes that may not be in the pet the best condition, kind of similar to um, NYCHA in a sense, uh, units that are not in the best condition but have been unlived in because of, you know, mold and asbestos and so forth. And that's happening in other cities too, even in the private market. Uh, so what they're doing, I know in uh, Baltimore, they're trying to invest, I want to say, $8 billion to revitalize those homes. And in Chicago, $13 billion to revitalize homes that are that have been abandoned or are just not in good mm-hmm. condition that could serve as a roof over someone's head. We don't have much time left, but I did want to ask you, so it, you mentioned Baltimore. You worked in Baltimore as a housing reporter, and your beat was defined as covering working-class Black neighborhoods, which is such an interesting way to think about it. In these 60 seconds or so we've got, why why was it framed that way? What is what? Why, why was that the way you were covering it? For sure. So uh, I, it was Black neighborhoods, and in Baltimore, uh, Baltimore is more than 60% Black. And so we wanted to uh, have a beat that just kind of looked at what these different neighborhoods uh, offered and what made them distinct. And there's one neighborhood that I just want to bring up. It was called Ashburton. I said it's in Baltimore, and it was 90% Black. And just kind of seeing what that meant to uh, that community. Like I said, uh, early on in the show, uh, house, uh, housing is a reflection of someone personally. And yeah. I think yeah. that's kind of what I saw out in Baltimore. There was just yeah. a lot of pride and community yeah. and love there. And it was a reflection of themselves. So, yeah. A beautiful thought to leave it on. <laughs> Tatiana Turner is a housing reporter for City Limits. She's covered housing in New York, Baltimore, and Chicago. Thanks so much for this time. Thank you so much. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. This episode was produced by Rahima Nasa and Carolina Hidalgo, who leads WNYC's Radio Rookies program. Special thanks to her and to Radio Rookie Fanta Kaba. Mixing and music by Jared Paul. Juliana Fonda was our live engineer this week. Our team also includes Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gabber, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Our executive producer is Andre Robert Lee, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level you'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.